God's word from Acts 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of, the, word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. God, we pray that you would speak now through your word. We have no words to offer, but that come from your word. And so we pray that you would speak now. If there is anything that I say in the next few minutes that is not in keeping with the truth and authority of your word, may it go in one ear and out the other of everyone here. Would you take your word and, and plant it deep within our hearts so that we would believe and that we would be obedient? This we know that you will do by the power of your spirit. We can only grow as you see fit for us to grow, as your spirit grants us that. We pray that your spirit would grant us that now, to grow as your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you about a wonderful place, a magical place, I think it is. It's actually not too far from here. You could actually leave in the morning and easily be back by dinner. It's in a little town in northeast Alabama called Scottsboro. Some of you already know the name of the place that I'm going to tell you about. It's a little place called Unclaimed Baggage. I don't know if you have been there. But as their website boasts, it's the nation's only retailer of lost luggage. Have you ever wondered where all of the lost luggage from all over the country goes? I think most of you are probably like, no. But I have. <laughs> and if you're like me and you've wondered that, then wonder no more. Whatever bags are unclaimed at whatever airport every day across the country wind up in all places... Uh, or of all places in Scottsboro, Alabama, at Unclaimed Baggage. I've been there once. It's basically a Walmart-sized thrift store of sorts, but there's kind of a surrealism and maybe even a bit of sadness as you walk through and pick through all sorts of stuff. And I couldn't sink uh, or I couldn't shake that sort of feeling when I was there like I was some kind of intruder, like picking and sifting through uh, a bunch of other people's baggage. I know, you know, you might be like, you got all that from a glorified thrift store? The answer is yes, I'm weird. 
I know I had that sort of existential crisis in being there. Like, this is all somebody else's baggage. I'm not meant to be looking through this. But uh, there's actually another reason, the main reason why I'm talking to you about baggage this morning is because, or the Unclaimed Baggage Center, is because it's a lot like the church when you think about it. place where our baggage is brought in and at times exposed and picked through, right? Our past and present sin struggles and relational tensions and all kinds of anxieties are brought into one big glorious mess. And when that happens, and even because that happens, we're all triggered to react and respond in different ways. We think to ourselves, you know, that's the problem with the church. It's the people, right? If only everyone would just act like Jesus. Or maybe we think we know the best way to, the, to clean up the mess, right? The church should be more organized. Or the church should be less organized and more organic. Uh, we should have more rules. No, 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 we should have less rules. We just need more doctrine. No, 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 we just need more compassion. Or maybe we think to ourselves that we could just be more like the first church in Acts. Maybe we wouldn't have all this baggage to deal with in the first place. They were so pure, right? So untainted, so undefiled, it seems. At least they were until we get to our text for today in Acts 6. With this brief episode, I think Luke wants to challenge the sometimes idealized picture of the first church that we have in our minds. Except for the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they kind of seem more like outliers than anything else. Um, except for them, the threats to the church up until this point have been largely external, uh, but now the threat is internal. And Luke wants us to see this. He wants us to reckon with this. People in the first church in Acts had baggage, just like me and you. So what's instructive for us as we look at the church in our text for today and as we move forward in Acts is, is not to consider what little strife or tension they had and try to emulate that. What's instructive for us, what we should learn as we look at the church in Acts, is how to handle the baggage that we all bring in for the glory of God and for the good of his people. The church that Jesus died for is not without blemish, not yet. We won't be until he comes again. And yet Luke celebrates the work that's being done here uh, in and through this first church uh, with, with baggage and blemishes and all. Why does he celebrate the work that's being done here? Well, it's because how this church manages this tension that they have, it reveals what it looks like to be a faithful, God-glorifying church. And so in that sense, we should want to be more like the church in Acts, right? Not because they don't have baggage, but because of how they deal with it. So here's what we as a church need to be reminded of in this story. Our main idea, a big idea for today, to grow in God's way requires faithfulness to God's mission. To grow in God's way requires faithfulness to God's mission. Come what may, we will not grow with a growth that God wants if we, if we don't remain faithful to his mission. As we walk through this text, we'll see a faithfulness play out in this church, even in the midst of internal frustration and tension. This is a test for this fledgling church in Acts. And the way that they pass this test is so instructive for us, so helpful for us as a church. So to grow in God's way requires faithfulness to God's mission. And we'll explore that by considering two ways 
that, and by the way, these are not exhaustive ways, but just from this text, I think we can look at two ways that we remain faithful to God's mission today. In compassionate care and in prayerful preaching. In compassionate care and prayerful preaching, we remain faithful to God's mission. So first, we'll look at how we should be faithful to compassionately care for one another. Our faithfulness to God's mission shows itself in the way we compassionately care for one another. In Luke, uh, one, I'm sorry, in verse 1, Luke says something that he loves to say. What does he say? He says that the disciples were increasing in number. So even though he's about to present us with a problem that the church has to solve, it's a problem that arises from the growth of the church. It's a good problem. We love to say that in the church, don't we? Oh, that's a good problem. Like when there's too many people uh, to, to fit in the room or there's too many volunteers for the mission trip. That's a good problem to have. I remember one time I organized a, a potluck, like a soup potluck, and I asked everyone to bring soup. But I didn't ask anyone to bring anything other than soup. So we had 39 crockpots, 39 crockpots of soup. You say problem, I say that was a good problem to have. Uh, we love to say that our problems are good because we love to put a positive spin on things, right? And you know what? That's okay. Because Luke does that too. He delights in telling us that the church is growing. Disciples are being made. And so when personal baggage is brought into the church because the church is legitimately growing, that's a good problem. But it's a problem nonetheless. It's still a problem. The darker side to this problem in Jerusalem is that the growth of the church has resulted in needs not being met. As we all know, when an organization or a church grows in number, those numbers represent people, and people have needs. And you know what else? People make mistakes. Mistakes have been made. We're not told by whom, but the complaint does come to the apostles because they had been overseeing the distribution of food and resources to those who were in need in the church. We're told that at the end of Acts chapter 4. And this specific complaint comes from a group of Greek-speaking Jews called Hellenists. And we don't know what, if any, like faction or division existed between the Hellenists uh, who spoke Greek or the other Jews in the picture here who spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, it could be that the Hellenists had to travel further uh, back and forth to and from Jerusalem. So they weren't as, or, or they weren't as close in proximity to the apostles or the bank of resources that the church had. Could be that. Uh, it could be the language barrier. Maybe that's why Luke includes the, the detail of what language they speak, but ultimately we just don't know. What we do know is that the Hellenist widows, for whatever reason, were being neglected. The reason's not all that important or else Luke would have told us what it was. What's important is that it was wrong for these widows to have been neglected. Friends, I want to ask you, have you ever been neglected? Like looked over? Ignored, Kids, have you ever been left out of a game that you really wanted to play? Have you ever been left out of a group of friends that you really wanted to be friends with? It hurts your feelings, right? Well, that doesn't change when you grow up. It hurts to be neglected, to be made to feel like you don't belong, especially when you so desperately want to belong to the group of people or to the thing that you're being left out of. That must have been how these widows felt as they were neglected. But what's also so grievous about the complaint that the Hellenists raised is that the widows were being neglected. The widows, likely the most vulnerable and needy members of the church, were going out, going without their basic needs being met. This was unacceptable. 
So it was right for the Hellenists to express their concerns. And how do the apostles respond, by the way? Do they shoo them away? Or make them feel like their concerns are invalid? No. They respond with compassion, with compassionate care. Verses 2 and 3 describe their process. They call the disciples or all the church together uh, to give them direction on the qualities of men that they should look for. They should be well thought of. Uh, men of good repute and the Holy Spirit should be evident in their lives through their wisdom. And then the seven men that are chosen and appointed, they all have Greek names, which is highly likely an indication that these are all Hellenist men. So in the details of this process, we can see the compassionate care of the apostles in the church for these neglected widows. It's a joint effort of the church to come together to assess the need and then to see to it that that need is met in the most effective way possible. To this church, it wasn't enough to just make sure that the widows were not neglected, any, uh, neglected anymore, like, check that box, now those Hellenists won't bother us anymore. No, the way the church so beautifully comes together and the apostles lead through this inner tension is an indication of how serious they are about remaining faithful to God's mission. The bar was set high. For the men who were to oversee this distribution, it's like the apostles were saying, go find the best from among you. When you say go find the best who are among you, the task that they're going to be appointed to must be really important. They're the ones, these seven that are chosen, who need to be appointed to this crucial task. And did you also notice that the apostle charged the whole church themselves with the job of putting forward these men. You may wonder, well, how does that demonstrate compassionate care? Well, I think it's because they want the church, the whole church, to be aware of this need and how important it is for this need to be met and what they should do in the days ahead as they continually seek to care for each other. Anything that happens or is shared or dealt with when the whole church is gathered is important. This is no exception. And in fact, I think the indication here is that the whole church is gathered for this reason, to care for these widows. And then like icing on the cake, the church goes the extra mile and puts forward seven men who are not only qualified, but who speak the widow's language. This is compassionate care. Now, this is just me, all right? I've heard one preacher say he likes to use his sanctified imagination. I want to do that too, so just bear with me. I like to imagine that the Hellenist widows were there when the apostles gathered the full number of the disciples. And, and I like to imagine that they may not have known that they were the reason why the church was gathered. And then when the apostles actually stated their reason for calling the assembly, I like to imagine just the tears of joy could be streaming, could, could be seen streaming down faces their needs would no longer go unmet this is why they've called everyone together for us and then i like to imagine uh finally perhaps what no one in the crowd could see the light and warmth of a fire reignited in the hearts of these lonely women the fire that had, had perhaps long since gone out the fire of family the fire of belonging and maybe they wondered how is it that we have found such a beautiful place to belong? This must be the church of Jesus himself. The church in Acts was faithful to God's mission in the way they compassionately cared for these precious members. 
Compassionate care in a church moves the mission of the church or moves the mission of God forward because it validates what the church has said, what the church says with her words about the compassion of Jesus himself. So any church that forsakes compassionate care lacks credibility. Any church that forsakes compassionate care, they lack credibility. They're just not believable. People are going to look in this and say they don't practice what they preach. So we're faithful to God's mission by compassionately caring. And secondly, even more importantly, we're faithful to God's mission by committing to the prayerful preaching of his word. We are faithful to God's mission by committing to the prayerful preaching of his word. Now, you may have been or maybe now you're wondering, why is it that the apostles say that they shouldn't give up uh, the preaching of the word to serve table, tables? We see that in verse 2. Isn't that kind of disgusting? If you read it a certain way, like if I read it that way, it sounds like this to me because Lydia and I just started watching The Crown, and so it kind of sounds snooty that they would say it this way, like, serve tables? Oh dear, not me. What a frivolous notion. Like that's how you could read it if you read it that way, but is that what's going on? The answer is, of course not. That's not what's going on for a couple reasons. For one, the apostles had been overseeing this ministry themselves says that back in Acts 4. So they didn't see themselves as being above serving tables. Now, secondly, that can't be what they're saying because, uh, saying because as we've already seen, they show, they, they care about this issue. They've shown compassionate care uh, to these widows and how they ensure that their needs will be met as valued members of the community. They're not saying that the task itself is beneath them. What they're saying there in verse 2 is that the needs have outgrown their ability to see to those needs. Why? Because in order to personally see to those needs now would come at the expense of the primary task that had been given to them by Jesus himself. For the apostles to personally see to those needs would, would come at the expense of the most important aspect of God's mission, the prayerful preaching of the word. They say it again in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word and what's the response of the congregation? If we don't believe the apostles here, what's the response of the congregation? That should reveal where the apostles are really at. Does the congregation say, oh, there they go again, back to their ivory tower, and they're just going to pray and preach, and you know, we're going to be on the ground doing the real work of ministry? No. Verse 5, it says the congregation was pleased, was pleasing to them this direction. Why was it pleasing to them? Not only because the Hellenist widows would have been taken care of, certainly that, but, but more than that, but because the prayerful preaching of the word was not going to be compromised. This church knows, and Luke wants us to know, that to grow God's way is ultimately dependent on the prayerful and faithful preaching of God's word. Verse 1 of our text uh, says that the disciples were increasing in number. Why were they increasing in number? Well, let's look back at the last verse of chapter 5. 542, what does it say? And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So then that's immediately followed by 6.1 that says they were increasing in number. And then the last verse of our text for today, verse 7, what does it say? It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The net result of this story is even more disciples being made as the influence of God's word continued to grow. 
And what's so remarkable about this moment in the first church's life is how they strategize and organize in order to take care of an immediate need, yes, but not without forsaking their commitment to offer the world the solution to their ultimate need, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's not forget what Romans 10 says. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? You can say it. The word of Christ. Now the last statement of our text It says that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why would Luke include that detail? Why would it end that way? Well, I think it's to highlight the saving power of the gospel. Even the hardest of hearts. The Jewish priests who had just persecuted the apostles back in chapter 5, even the hardest of hearts may be softened by the power of the gospel. But I have to believe, too, The priests wouldn't have been prepared to receive saving faith had they not just witnessed this tangible expression of Christ's compassion through the church and the caring of these widows. In fact, the priests would have been well aware of what it says in Psalm 68, 5, that God is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. So the seeds of God's word and the preaching of the apostles fell on the now fertile soil of these Jewish leaders' hearts. Do you see Luke's point in these seven verses? It's not really about the appointment of deacons, although I think this does help us understand why a diaconate uh, group of deacons is necessary in a church. To provide for basic needs uh, within and to allow the elders to prayerfully preach the word. But it's not a text that's primarily about deacons. It's a text that helps us see how we should faithfully manage the baggage we bring in and the tensions that arise in our church in a way that keeps us faithful to God's mission. It's a text that shows us how to not forget what the Apostle Paul would go on to write, that the gospel is of first importance. And it's a text that shows us how to reflect the very heart of our Savior, Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. You remember in Mark 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic who's lowered into the crowded room by his friends? What does Jesus do for him first? It's interesting. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in doing that, Jesus gives him what he needs most of all. But to validate his authority, to say to the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, he says this in response to the scribes that question him. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So yes, Jesus does show us what compassionate care looks like by healing the paralytic of his paralysis. And if If we as Christians, if we're not marked by that same compassion for those who are hungry and sick and poor and lonely, then we'll lose our credibility. We won't be reflecting the heart of Jesus. But there's even something bigger at stake. If we fail to help people acknowledge that what they need most of all is what only Jesus can give. We've come to to know that the nature of our need as humans is eternal then the most important thing to us should be the prayerful preaching of the word. What the paralytic needed in Mark 2, most of all, was not the healing of his legs, it was was the healing of his heart. Both healings are important, but the physical healing is in service of the spiritual healing, to validate it. The church, we must reflect the heart of Jesus in the way that we remain faithful to God's mission. We must reflect the heart of Jesus if we want to grow in God's way. We don't want to be a church that forsakes compassionate care because then we'll lose our credibility 
but we also don't want to be a church that forsakes our commitment to the prayerful preaching of the word because then we won't even be a church. Now, fortunately, we are a church that is marked by both compassionate care and prayerful preaching of the word. I, I think I can speak for Lydia when I say we have been so blessed uh, by God's grace in the way our church compassionately cares for one another and our community. Trace Crossing, you are a compassionate and caring people. We've actually just affirmed three wonderful folks to help us in this. Zach Varell, who's our deacon of finance. Julia Varell, who's our deaconess of hospitality. And Alex Weber, who is our deaconess of member care. And they help us to provide for basic needs within our body. I think about Michael and Beth Pate, who just welcomed their new baby boy, Isaiah Thomas, into the world this past week. And Alex was immediately on it with a meal train. And that's just the latest example among many examples of how our diaconate serves and helps us to maintain a high level of compassionate care. And even though there were seven specifically chosen in Acts, and just like these three have been chosen in our church, also just like Acts, remaining faithful to God's mission in compassionately caring for one another in our community, it should be of great importance to all of us, not just our diaconate. When one of us is hurting and in need, we should all feel that. Come together to meet whatever that need may be as much as we're able to meet it. In the immediate future, let's all jump on that meal train for the pates. Let's bless them. But, but even more importantly, I want to ask you these couple questions. How do you today personally need to grow in having a heart of compassion? Is compassion for others in your life, something that characterizes your regular rhythms. I'm convicted by that, personally. I need to grow in that, big time. I hope those questions are convicting for you as well. Because what's at stake is the very credibility of our witness. What's at stake is the effectiveness of our carrying out of the Great Commission. So let's build on what we have here and continue to grow as a compassionate church. We want to practice what we preach, because what we preach is the very word of God. And we want people to believe the very word of God. But if we want people to believe the very word of God that we preach, then we have to continue doing what we have been doing, even with all of our baggage. And in the midst of tension, we have to remain faithful to the word. I'm so thankful for a lead pastor who so regularly leads us and remains faithful to preaching the word. That's something that we should all be thankful for. But we do want you to continually hold us accountable to remain fa remaining faithful to God's word as your leaders. And I think in the context of these verses, that means two things. The apostles say they're going to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we as your leaders, we're expecting you to always keep us accountable to, to these two things as well, the gospel and prayer. The gospel and prayer, first of all, we have to consistently and even stubbornly preach the gospel. It's of first importance that the Christ is Jesus. Paul told the Galatian Christians to hold him accountable to that in this way. It's from Galatians 1. He says this, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I don't want to be accursed, but at the risk of being accursed, that is devoted to destruction, 
we are telling you the same thing. The power of our preaching must be the gospel. Because the gospel that the Christ is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Listen, we cannot grow in God's way apart from the gospel. And we offer the world no eternal hope apart from the gospel. Secondly, we want you to hold us accountable to being faithful in prayer. And of course, we want to hold you accountable to that too. Uh, We do value prayer here as a church, but we need to continue growing uh, in our prayer life. As leaders, as a congregation, we need to continue growing in this. The apostles were not willing to sacrifice the prayer that accompanied their preaching, even for something as important as serving tables. And so we too should not think we can grow in God's way if our preaching and every aspect of our church's life is not saturated with prayer. Prayer is the means by which we remain humble and dependent on the Spirit of God to do His work. And in some beautiful and mysterious way, though He doesn't need us, God God desires to move and to work through our prayers. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named Robert Smith Jr. He's a faculty member at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and he's also the pastor of a church there in Birmingham. And once in a lecture of his, he was talking about the importance of spirit-empowered preaching. And he compared the sermon to a candle and the sermon writer, the preacher, to a candle maker. And he said something like this, Our job as preachers is to make our sermons into the most beautiful and sweet-smelling and effective candles as possible. But what good is a candle if it's not lit? The Spirit of God has to light the flame of our sermons. The Spirit of God is the one who has to give our sermons life and purpose. The same example could be applied to everything we do as a church, right? We want to be excellent in our ministries here, but even our excellent ministries will just be excellent shelf decorations if they don't have the Spirit's fire. So we must pray, remaining ever dependent on the Spirit of God to empower our efforts as a church. Now, if you're listening today, here in the live stream and you're not a part of our church or if you're not a part of our church and maybe you're not a believer not a christian i want to challenge you with this don't go looking for a church without baggage first of all that doesn't exist right secondly if it looks like they have no baggage it's likely because they're hiding it or haven't created the kind of place where people feel safe to bring in their baggage the best churches are the ones who, encourage, who don't encourage people to check their baggage at the door. Best churches are the ones who acknowledge their temptations, their sin, their pain, their longing, and they demonstrate unwavering faithfulness to God's mission in the midst of that. They compassionately care for one another. They prayerfully preach the word. They humbly submit to God to grant growth if he should see fit to. Now, we hope that you'll find that here if you're new with us, if you're listening in today. We don't think that we're better than any other church in town, certainly not. But we do mean it when we say that you don't have to check your baggage at the door. We hope that encourages you not simply because we can all be sinners together, but because we can all experience God's grace together, the grace that he gives in Christ alone. And so if you have questions or doubts or fears, bring them on. We may not be able to answer every question that you have perfectly, but we will compassionately care for you. And more importantly, we'll offer you what we prayerfully preach, that the Christ is Jesus. 
the eternal hope that none of us have deserved or earned. How, for those of us who are Christians, regardless of how long or how short your walk with Christ has been, this small but touching story in Acts is it's so instructive for us. It's a picture of a beautiful church with baggage, church that has its challenges but is faithful to God's mission even when tested by those challenges. While it's true that the church in the New Testament, the church throughout history, and the church in years to come will face external pressure and threats of all kinds, sometimes it's the internal tensions that emerge from the baggage that we all bring in that pose the greatest threat to our faithfulness. A church family, we have faced internal tensions, and we're bound to again. But isn't that just another opportunity to grow in faithfulness to God's mission? Acts 6, 1 through 7 says that it is. Acts 6, 1 through 7 says that faithfulness to God's mission is a prerequisite for growing God's way. Will it be hard? Yes. Will we fail? Yes. Will our baggage full of sin and sorrow at times feel like more than we can bear? Yes. But, we will, but will we ever have reason to lose hope? No. Because the solid rock on which we stand will never be shaken. There's a day coming when he returns for us in glory to welcome us home. And on that day, church family, we'll finally be able to check our baggage at the door. We'll never have to pick it up again. 